0: So today we're going to talk about turn and return. Specifically, we're going to talk about repentance. But as I was, uh, as we were singing and as I was worshiping, I just, uh, a scripture came to my mind that really doesn't necessarily have anything to do with my message today, but I just want to read this because I think it's encouragement, maybe for all of us. I know it's encouragement for me. It's from Galatians chapter 6. Verse 9, and Paul writes, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Actually, that scripture has a lot to do with my message today as I talk to you about repentance. Uh, repentance is, is not a topic that is necessarily popular in the church today we like to talk more about how we can get people to, I don't know, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to, it almost seems like in our culture today, we're trying to minimize and water down truth in an effort to make it more appealing to people, but Jesus never did that. And when we talk about repentance, we're talking about something that, that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. I believe what's urgently needed in churches across our land is repentance and a return to the gospel. You know, Paul talked about another gospel. He said, if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, even if it's an angel, reject them. It's not more ministries and more people or bigger buildings and greater wealth or even greater influence in our culture. We're always looking for ways to influence our culture. But it's not those things that we urgently need. We need repentance and we need a return to the gospel of Christ. More ministries with more people, bigger buildings with greater wealth and greater influence all pointed in the wrong direction. Only will increase the problem, it's not going to address it. We need to turn and return to God and His gospel that our land would be healed. The root of chronic spiritual problems plaguing our land today can be traced to the doorsteps of our churches. Many churches are rejecting God's power by rejecting His gospel. Others have become passive, falling silent in the face of sin while professing to embrace the gospel. They never make the call that the gospel commands us to make, which is a call to repentance. Much of the professing church has rejected the truth of Scripture for a lie. We actually talked about this in our Sunday school lesson this morning. And I didn't know we were going to talk about this. But how this term evangelical is a term that has come to mean many different things. To some people, it means something good. To other people, it actually is not a good thing. When you look at what many self-identified evangelical churches are promoting today, it is anything but the gospel of Christ. So much of the professing church has rejected the truth of Scripture for a lie. Men have rejected the true gospel with Christ enthroned at the center for a false gospel that elevates and puts man at the center. That is what we would call a false gospel. Truth is compromised for the sake of conformity and convenience. Permissiveness and perversion is embraced in the name of love. And evil is called good, and good called evil." You don't have to wonder if that's true. All you have to do is pick up a news article, watch your television, or catch the line, the media online, the news online. Wherever you see it, this is the reality that we're seeing today. The gospel, Paul writes this in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And without the gospel, we are in peril. A church without the gospel is a church without power, and it cannot truly be the church. As we look across the landscape of our nation, in our own communities, and in our own church... And into our individual lives, we can see that the gospel of Christ has been watered down at best or abandoned altogether at worst. It is time, in fact, Paul writes this, he said, it is high time for the church to awake, for the people of God to humble themselves and to pray. We need the healing of the Lord that will only come through repentance and a return to his gospel God has given us his word, his holy scripture for us to see, for us to hear, and for us to obey. Here's our text today, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Listen to the word of the Lord. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, the words of Jesus. Matthew writes, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven Is at hand. That was the message of Jesus. Repent. Repent is not a dirty word, but you would not know that by listening to many professing Christians today because it is a word that has fallen out of much of the church's vocabulary. But it is still in God's vocabulary and it is still in God's Word. God instructs his people to repent. You notice it's not the world that God is addressing in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It is his people. He doesn't say if the world will humble themselves and pray. He says if my people will humble themselves and pray. Jesus came to his people commanding them to Repent. To repent means to turn or to return. It is to turn back to, to return to God. God commands us to repent. You will never turn or return to God until your mind has been changed. And this is the importance of the scripture. Unless you are reading and washing your mind with this word, your mind is not going to just change. And we want God to give us the magic pill and the magic bullet and snap his magic fingers and make everything just go away. But God has given us his word. And when you consider the amount of blood that has been spilled to pin this word and preserve this word and bring this word to us, that is the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God. I'm not talking about my New King James translation and printed in English. This this probably has some typos in it. I'm talking about the original God-breathed, inspired Word of God. When God gave His Word to His prophets and to His apostles, He gave it to them in truth, without error. This is the Word of God that we are talking about. This is what God has preserved for us. Your Bibles are reliable. Read them. Wash your mind with God's word and be changed and be transformed. This is really what repentance is. It's a change of mind, a change of heart. It is a, not just a mental and an emotional and a spiritual, but a physical turning to God. This is what God commands that his people do. Turn to him, turn back to him, return to him. The judgment of God comes to an unrepentant people. His judgment is to discipline his own in their sinful disobedience. He does this to bring his people to repentance that he may heal their land. Our land needs healing today, if you haven't noticed. We keep looking to Austin and to Washington and to D's and to R's and to I's and every other political ilk there is, but that is not going to bring us the answers to the problems that we have because the root of our problems are spiritual and that's why I say the the root of our problem is traced right back to the doorsteps of our churches. It is that the church has stopped preaching the gospel. It is that the church has stopped believing the word of God. It is that the church has embraced every flavor of sinfulness in the name of love and tolerance and just plain old getting along. And now we're wondering what's happened to our nation. It's like we woke up one day and something was changed. Well, listen, it's been changing for a long time. We're, we're pretty much at a full boil, if you know the frog analogy. The call to repent is the call of God's grace that healing may come to overtake His judgment. The message of repentance may be uncomfortable for us in our sin, but it is absolutely necessary to bring his salvation to our life and healing to our land. Listen, if the message of repentance is uncomfortable for us inside the church, can you imagine how uncomfortable it is for the people outside the church? And if the people in the church, if the church can't endure a message about repentance, then we're in trouble. Because we, of all people, should not only endure and embrace that message, we should be living that message and communicating that message with our lives. To those who are out there without Jesus, or to those who are out there who have abandoned the faith, who profess to know Jesus, who profess to love Jesus, but will not darken the door of a church, they are in sin and somebody needs to tell them that say, well, that's, that's pretty mean, pastor. No, that's not mean. That's actually loving. Allowing people to live with this myth that they can just be out there on their own and have their own one-on-one thing with God and never darken the door of a church and never assemble together, they are in complete rebellion against God's word. Do you know what the word church means? The word church is a Greek word. You know who used it first? Jesus used it first in the New Testament. It's recorded first for us in Matthew's gospel. It's a Greek word that means the assembly of called out ones. It actually in Greek culture was a political term that spoke of like a Republican or Democratic convention It was the assembly of called out ones. That's the term Jesus used to describe his people. We are an assembly. You know what an assembly does? It assembles. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. And even so, the more as you see the day approaching. That's a command, that's not a suggestion. Jesus by the very definition of who we are the church that that the essence of that definition speaks of us assembling together there is no church without the assembly it's not the scattered individual randomness of called out ones it's the assembly of called out ones that's what the word means what what are we giving witness to in our nation You know what the answer to that is? Look at our nation and it'll tell you what we're giving witness or how we're giving witness. We're not doing a very good job. The myth that many believe today is that Jesus would be open and tolerant of much the Bible calls sin if he were among us today. Well, here's the fact, church. He is among us today. He's here. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus hasn't vacated planet earth. In fact, he poured out his spirit so that he could be not just with us, but in us. He is God with us. Emmanuel. He's not God far removed from us. He's God with us. The hope of glory is Christ in you. Jesus is among us. And Jesus has never and Jesus will never tolerate sin. Heaven and earth may pass away, but God's word will not, and Jesus remains the same. Matthew twenty four thirty five, the words of Jesus, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word is eternal, and it teaches us that Jesus does not change. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That might not settle it for the world, but it better settle it for the church. For the believer, that should settle any questions you might have. Does God look at sin the same way today as he did before? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe things have changed. No, they haven't. God looks at sin exactly the same way. He sent his only begotten son to die to eradicate it. That's how much he hates sin. And Jesus is not a different Jesus today. God is not a different God today. We don't have some hippie flower child Jesus walking around saying, it's cool, man, whatever you want to do, it's fine with me. That is not the God of the Bible. So we as the church should never, ever, ever present that picture or that illusion of Jesus to the world around us because if we do, we are helping them on their way to eternal judgment separated from God instead of calling them to turn and come to God. Jesus calls us to repent. At the end of Matthew's gospel, which we looked at last week in the Great Commission, we see Jesus commissioning his disciples to go and to make disciples. His disciples commanded to go and make other disciples. We are his disciples. We are commanded to go and to make disciples. You get that, right? But in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus calling men to repent. Jesus commissions us to go and to make disciples, but not before he commands us to repent. The call to repent is recorded for us in the scripture. It is a constant for every believer. Jesus commands us to repent and he expects us to obey. Let me give you some scriptures where Jesus is specifically commanding his church about repentance. Matthew 4:17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You notice that repentance is linked to the gospel. Repentance is not bad news and the gospel is good news. Repentance is part of the good news that is the gospel. Mark 6:12, and so they went out and preached that people should repent. Luke 13:2 through5. And Jesus answered and said to them, "Do you suppose that these Galileans who were murdered by Pilate and their blood was taken and mixed with the sacrifice that was offered in the temple?" This is who Jesus is talking about here. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? Question mark. Answer, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, he continues, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem just because a tower fell on them? The answer of Jesus, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the truth is, many of them did in A.D. 70 because they refused to repent. Revelation 2.5, Jesus writing to the churches of Asia. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Ooh, Jesus is starting to sound a little mean there. That just doesn't sound like Jesus to me. Why would he come and take something from me? Revelation 2.16. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, now, come on. That's even more mean. He's going to take my lance in. Now he's going to fight against me with a sword. That just doesn't sound like Jesus. You know, I'm being facetious, right? How about this? Revelation 2, 21 through 23. Again, Jesus speaking. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and will give to each one of you according to your words. Listen, those are hard words. Those are words that Jesus spoke after the cross. You know, a lot of times we read things in the Bible and say, well, that was all before the cross. You know, none of that applies now anymore after the cross. Jesus is writing this letter to the churches after he had already ascended to glory, after he had already finished his work on the cross. And he is warning the church that unless she repent, these are the things that will come upon her. Revelation 3.3 Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. I I feel like the church has been slumbering for many decades. We've not been watching and all of a sudden we woke up and our world has changed and we're scrambling trying to figure out what to do and we're looking to every place except the right place, which is the word of God. And you might say, sitting in this little building, in this little community of Taylor today, well, Pastor Jeff, what? on earth could we possibly do to make a difference? The problem is so huge. Might I remind you that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was was born in an insignificant city, not in a palace surrounded by armed guards, but in a feed trough a manger in a stable because there was no place for him anywhere else. He grew up in the backwoods of his nation where everybody there were considered a bunch of hick and hillbilly and country folk who didn't know their right hand from their left hand and all they could do was fish for a living because they weren't smart enough to do anything else. What good thing possibly could come from that area is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day said. I want to remind you that God throughout his word has shown us this is his pattern. So just when you're tempted to think that your life can't make any difference, that that who you are and where you are is too insignificant, I want to remind you of Gideon who was tasked with defeating an overwhelming foe and he mustered as many men as he could and God came to him and God says, hey, Gideon, you got too many. What do you mean I got too many? I don't have enough. I'm still outnumbered. Now you got too many. Get rid of some of them. Okay, what about this? Now you still got too many. Get rid of some more. Are you sure? Yeah, he gets it down to 300 men facing the overwhelming odds of Hundreds of thousands. Now, I'm, I don't know, you've probably read the story, but in case you haven't, guess who won? You think God or his enemies won? You think God can use 300 people or even three people to change what he wants to be changed? You better believe that he can, and you better believe that he does. So never, ever, ever feel insignificant, powerless, hopeless, because you are not any of those things in Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, Jesus is speaking here, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus commands that we repent. The gospel is a message of repentance. It is truly good news to know that we can turn and return to God. Like a loving father who corrects his child, God in his love calls his children to repent and will use his chastening judgment to bring us to that repentance. Not because he hates us, not because he's mad at us, but because... He loves us. If God didn't love us, he would leave us to ourselves. And let us continue down our merry road to hell. But God does love us. And he is not content to leave us to ourselves. We need to learn this lesson, church. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 5, verse 29 through 32. Listen to this. Then Levi gave him a great feast. Levi is Matthew. Matthew's name was Levi. He was the tax collector. And this is before he became the disciple of Jesus. This is while he was still a tax collector in his sin, and he decided that he was... Curious, interested about this Jesus. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes, and the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need for, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's often said by those who do not know God or the Bible that Jesus hung out with sinners and did not condemn them or judge them, but allowed them to feel just fine in their sin. That is absolutely false. We know that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance and Jesus not only called people sinners but he called them, he called those sinners to repent of their sin. Jesus did not approve of sin and he did not enable sinners to stay in their sin. Jesus called people sinners and he called them out of their sin. Just as he is calling us out of our sin today, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus commands us here's where it gets more difficult. We don't have a problem saying, okay, well, okay, I'll accept that. Jesus calls people to repent. He calls sinners to repentance. But surely Jesus would not ask me to call someone to repent. Oh, contraire, he actually does. Jesus commands us to call sinners to repentance. The Great Commission recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, Luke's chap- Luke chapter 24 in verse 47, Jesus speaking, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance of sins should be preached. Remission of sins should be preached. We like the remission of sin part, we just don't like the repentant part, but there is no remission without repentance. So we're actually not helping people if we never tell them they need to repent. If we just go around telling them, don't worry, your sins are forgiven, we're actually lying to them. Because their sins may not be forgiven if they've not repented, if they've not come to faith in Jesus. Universal salvation is a lie. It's a lie the devil would love for us to believe. And many people do believe it to their peril. Jesus commands that repentance should be preached in calling sinners to repentance corporately and individually. We are to do so righteously, not hypocritically. How many of you have ever been told by somebody, you can't judge me, only God can judge me? We say, oh, that's right, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to judge. Stop apologizing. You absolutely are supposed to judge. You're just supposed to judge righteously, not hypocritically. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Listen, the words of Jesus, judge not that you be not judged. See, I told you, you're not supposed to judge. Keep taking those scriptures out of context. And twisting them like the devil does and believe a lie instead of understanding what the truth is. Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus is teaching us here. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, that measure of judgment you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. Yes, Jesus <laughs> called them hypocrites. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you notice what Jesus never told us? Do you notice what's there that Jesus never said to not do? Jesus never said, don't remove the speck from your brother's eye. Only remove the plank from your eye. Leave the speck in your brother's eye. That's not what Jesus told us to do. Jesus said, before you go to remove the speck from your brother's eye, take the plank out of your own eye. Take the plank out of your own eye, then remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, how am I going to remove the speck from my brother's eye if I don't judge that there's a speck there to remove? Jesus is not, in the Bible, nowhere tells us never to judge. The Bible tells us judge Righteously, In fact, we are commanded to judge. We cannot remove the speck from our brother's eye if I don't judge my brother has a speck in it. I loved Bennett's analogy when we were talking about this Bible study on Wednesday night. That word plank there, it's like a beam. It's a beam. In the the King James, it says the beam. And Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a point. It's It's like we've got this beam poking out of our eye. Well, how are we going to go remove a speck? I can't even get close enough to my brother to remove a speck because I got this beam, and every time I try to get up to his eye to remove the speck, I keep poking him with the beam coming out of my eye. This is the picture Jesus is giving us. He said, get the plank out of your eye, then go to your brother and help your brother remove the speck. Jesus never commanded that we not judge sin. Jesus commanded that we not judge sin hypocritically like the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees would focus on the speck in their brother's eye while refusing to acknowledge the glaring log of sin in their own eye. We are to judge righteously. Yes, we are to judge, but righteously, not hypocritically. Jesus instructs us, first remove the log, then remove the speck. But he never, ever instructed us to ignore the speck in our brother's eye. He instructs us to repent of our own sin first and then go to our brother. The Apostle Paul gives a similar exhortation in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me ask you, how can, I, how can I do that without judging the sin or the trespass my brother has fallen into? Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. I can't do that unless I'm judging my brother's sin. And when I judge that my brother is in sin and I see him in sin, love demands that I go to him, not arrogantly, not condescendingly, not in a condemning way, but in a spirit of gentleness that he be restored. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and we believe this lie that we're to never judge. Therefore, we can't say anything about sin. When the Bible is so clear and commands us, we have to say something about sin. To restore such a one, there's got to be a judgment made concerning sin. And then it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Sin is a burden we all bear. Your sin, my sin, all of our sin is a burden to the body of Christ. It is a burden in the world. We are to deal with sin in a spirit of gentleness when we're dealing with our brothers. But there is also a time to deal with sin in a commanding and a forceful way just like Jesus did when he made the whip of uh, the, the whips and he and he drove the money changers out of the temple. He did not do that gently. He judged the sin and said this sin dictates a different kind of response than seeing my brother struggling in sin. I go to him with a spirit of gentleness lest I be tempted and fall into the same sin or worse. And we do that. We address sin to bring about restoration. When we bear one another's burdens we are fulfilling the law of Christ. We love one another and bear one another's burdens knowing that Jesus Christ has taken away our sin. We give it We give our sin to Jesus knowing that he has nailed it to the cross. That's why you are commanded to cast that upon Jesus. We're not to carry around our sin. Jesus took our sin. So when sin comes to us, when we involve ourselves in sin and sinful behaviors and sinful practices, we give that to Jesus. That's repenting. We repent of it. We turn from it. We turn back to God. We give those things to God knowing that Jesus has paid the price for it. So we don't have to carry that burden. If someone you loved and someone you cared about was trying to carry a heavy burden and they were they were being weighted down underneath that burden, would you just stand there and go, hey, uh, you know, maybe if you try bending from your knees instead of from your back, it might be easier to pick that thing up. Why don't you give that a try? You're going to hurt your back if you keep doing that. Now, if you really cared about it, what would you do? You'd go to your brother who's weighted down with a burden and you would help remove that burden from him. That's the picture Paul writes and gives us in Galatians. Sin is the burden. When we see our brothers and our sisters burdened under sin, love demands that we go to them and we help them remove that burden. Where does the burden go? We give it to Jesus. Jesus is the one who takes the burden. Do you see the difference between the lie that the world likes to perpetuate and the truth that the scripture teaches? The world says you can't judge me. The Bible teaches if a person professes to be a believer and falls into sin, their fellow believers have an obligation to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Biblical restoration cannot happen unless we acknowledge our sin and honestly deal with it through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ people's resistance to acknowledge and deal with sin goes to the problem that Jesus points out and is recorded for us in the gospel of John. Look at John chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. Jesus is speaking and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness. The context here comes from comes from John God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Now listen, we've come by this honestly. In the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate from the fruit and they gained the knowledge of good and evil, what was the first thing they did? They sewed fig leaves together, covered themselves, and hid themselves. Because man in his sinfulness does not want his sin exposed. And this is why repentance has fallen out of favor in the church because the world has made it very clear because this is who we are in our sinfulness. Don't talk to me about repentance. Don't talk to me about my sin. I don't want my sin exposed. Let's just pretend like no one can see it. So men twist the truth of Scripture. They say they will so that they will not have to deal with the truth of their sin. Calling good evil and evil good, sinful men reject the truth of God and refuse to acknowledge their sin, lest their sinful deeds be exposed. But our sin is always exposed to God. And only in Christ can it finally be taken away. It is pride that keeps us lying about our sin God commands that we, his people, humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. And in doing that, God promises to hear us, to forgive us, to heal us and our land. So we cannot, as the church, we must not be afraid to deal with sin, our own sin and the sin that is within the community of believers and as the church deals with sin it gives witness to the world of what sin is and what the remedy for sin is repentance involves conviction not condemnation we are sinners saved by grace that does not exclude us from pointing out sin sometimes we say oh well i can't i can't go to that person because you know i'm just a sinner too well let me ask you who's not a sinner Well, God's the only one, so the only God can deal with my sin. Really? Uh, uh, Unless God tells me about my sin, I don't want to hear about it. Listen, you don't want to have to have God tell you about your sin because in the day that you stand before God and he tells you about your sin, it's not a good day at Flat Rock. It's not going to be a good day for you. In that day, you will much rather have had a human being on planet Earth confront you about your sin. Don't wait for God to confront you. Because if you wait for God to confront you, there is no hope in that day that God confronts you about your sin. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to bring salvation. And that is not because the world did not need condemning, but because the world was already under condemnation. Because it had already fallen under sin. We deceive ourselves. God sees and he knows everything. When Jesus was at the dinner at Levi's house with all the tax collectors and the sinners, he was not ignoring the sin in the room. He was being a witness and calling them out of their sinfulness. I had, knew a gentleman... I don't even know if he's still alive. Lost track of him long ago. And he, he was a believer. and he, he believed that his ministry was to go down to the bar every night and get drunk with the drunks and sit there and talk to them about Jesus. And I said, no, that's not what your ministry is. I don't have a problem with you going to the bar and sitting and talking to the drunks as long as you're not getting drunk with them. I'm not even saying you can't have a beer or two. But to sit there and get smash mouth drunk with all the drunks and think that you're witnessing to them, you are not. You are enabling them to continue in their sin. And this is exactly what we do when we say, Pastor, it's okay for you to be a homosexual. Oh, it's okay for you to get an abortion. Oh, it's okay to support those things. Oh, it's okay to approve of those things. Oh, it's okay to keep that to yourself. Uh, you know, I don't agree with you personally, but, but if that's what, that's what your conviction is, that's okay. No, it's not okay. It wasn't okay for Jesus, and it's not okay for us. And this is why our land is in the trouble that it's in, because the church does not have the courage to stand up and tell the truth. Christ Fellowship, do you have the courage to stand up and tell the truth? Can you go out into this world and be a witness for truth? I'm not saying go out there and be obnoxious. I'm not saying go out there and drive everyone away from you. I'm saying be a witness for the truth. I'm saying don't back down when the hard things come up. When God makes it blatantly obvious that you have an opportunity to give witness that, that sin and God wants you to come out of that. Do you have the courage to do that? Or you just say, well, you know, that's, that's between them and God. You know, my relationship's between me and God, their relationship's between them and God. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm good. No, you're not good. There's none good but God, and that certainly is not good. You are salt or you are not. You are light or you are darkness. And if you are in Jesus, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, Ephesians 5 8. And Paul says, he commands, in fact, walk as children of light. What does that mean to walk as a child of light? That means your light's going to shine. And every, listen, if we flipped all the lights off on this, in this room right now, I promise you it'd be, well, it wouldn't be anymore, but it used to be pitch black because we didn't have windows in the front doors. But the moment you flip the lights on, do you see the darkness hesitate? I mean, when you get up in the morning, I get up and I walk into my kitchen to flip on the light to go make the coffee. And when I flip the light on, you know, I never see a struggle between the light and the darkness. Like, yeah, maybe the darkness isn't going to go this morning. You know, maybe it's going to hang around. You know, I keep flipping the lights and the darkness won't leave. No, every time I turn the light on, the darkness flees. In an instant, it's gone. Why can't Christians believe the word of God? You once were darkness, but you are light now. You are light in the Lord be a light in the darkness. Be salt because our earth needs it. Our world needs it. Our land needs it. Jesus never made a sinner feel comfortable in their sin. And we should seek to be just like Jesus. We do not condemn because sin has already done that. But if Christ is rightly manifest through us, we will make people convicted of, And not comfortable in their sin. Jesus never approves of sin. He commands that we repent and that we call men to repentance. We must not fear man, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is calling us to turn and to return. And he is calling us to call men to do the same. I want to invite you to get ready to come to the table. Every week, we come to this table. And every week, we affirm the death of Jesus. We affirm the price that was paid so that we could unload the burden of our sin onto Jesus. But this table is not just about us unloading the burden of our sin. It's about much more than that. It's about God giving us life and God making us part of Him and His life. We are the body of Christ, members individually of one body. If you have never trusted in Jesus, I would encourage you to trust in him right now. And as you trust in Jesus, I invite you to come to the table. Let's all stand. Your charge today is to remind you the gospel calls sinners to repentance. When the people of God abandon the gospel, they abandon the power of God to salvation. And in the process, they invite the judgment of God to correction. America has long become a nation inviting God's judgment, and judgment is upon us now. That reality is not in question. The question now is whether God's judgment will become heavier or whether through repentance and a return to the gospel, God's judgment will be withdrawn. As we consider the current state of affairs in our land, we must realize that we hold the key to God's healing or the key to God's judgment. As God's people, by our obedience or by our disobedience, we will either know his healing or we will continue to know his judgment. God is graceful and long-suffering. So I want you to be a people filled with hope and not despair. We have every reason to hope because Jesus is our hope. We are called to be a people of faithful, obedient action. Let us humble ourselves and pray. Let us turn from our wicked ways. Let us turn and return to God and proclaim his gospel and see our land healed once again. God commanded Jeremiah, and so he commands us now. Therefore, prepare yourselves and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. Jeremiah 117. May we take these words to heart for our own nation and for our own land today and for our own community and congregation. May we not be dismayed before the faces of men, lest the Lord dismay us before them. May we be humble, may we humble ourselves and see God arise that his enemies may be scattered. Amen? Amen.